0: Hello, welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason. I'm here with Todd.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh,
0: today, we're going to talk about um, injuries, rehabbing from injuries. Um, what what kinds of injuries could you experience as a cyclist, and sort of what, what are the best routes to take to get back into the sport?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was a little bit inspired by some of the injuries just over the, the prior racing season, uh, particularly uh, Chris Froome. Uh, I was just recently reading that he was. Trying to get back into some racing uh, before the end of the calendar year, uh, which I I found very interesting. Uh, given my PT background, I was like, "Wow, that's you know you know obviously I don't know the exact details of his injuries, um, but that just uh, surprised me. Uh, knowing knowing at least what I knew and what I'd read uh, in the media about the extent of his injuries, So "Wow, that's that's pretty awesome." And you know, obviously, unlike the rest of us, he doesn't have a full time job as well as racing. He just races as his full-time job so that certainly frees you up for some time
0: and uh, Brailsford has called in every uh, doctor he knows I'm sure to have a look
1: yeah I mean professional athletes certainly get a little bit different treatment uh, when it comes to injuries and rehabilitation than the rest of us do Um, and so they certainly get closer to those minimum healing times uh, for tissue Um, but at the end of the day you can't cheat biology right you're you're certain tissue healing times and if you're going to get really, really close to that lower limit, but you're probably not going to exceed the lower limit. Like example, and I know Freeman had a number of fractures. His fractures were not going to heal in three weeks because he's an elite athlete and he has the most amazing doctors in the world. Bone healing time is typically on the order of six to eight weeks plus or mine you know, plus sometimes a little bit longer, depending on the complexity um, mm-hmm. and the individual. But you know, it, yes, if you have the best team of doctors and you're really fit and you can focus on your rehab, yeah, maybe you get closer to six weeks. Um, but you're certainly not going to like, Oh, three weeks, I'm good. I'm good to go. That, that doesn't happen.
0: Uh, I thought you were going to say, uh, Paul, Sarah uh, gave and, you the motivation to talk uh, about this. I mean, way. yeah,
1: that's, that's kind of motivating too. But, um, so anyhow, uh, we'll talk about injuries. Uh, I think I'll, I'll just break this into sort of two types of injuries uh, that I think about when I think about cycling and it's basically traumatic injuries and overuse injuries are sort of the two big buckets that I put them in and then so traumatic injuries i think is fairly simple Uh, these are the sorts of things that happen when the rubber doesn't stay down on the road right Uh, so you you have a crash you have a fall something like that and i'll even go make a little bit further distinction on this one and it's something that i I learned when i was doing some my training on high school football sidelines and i We've probably all seen this in our favorite sport, maybe not cycling so much. It looks a little different because the guys are hanging on to the car and the medic attends to them. But in field sports, right? player goes down and then the medical staff goes out in the field and assesses that individual. And either they you know come out of the game or they go back in to play in the game. And so I just remember like one of the first times I did this, a you know, coach comes out, players down, and the coach says to the player said, "Well, are you hurt or are you injured?" And I was like, wait. aren't aren't those the same thing like hurt (laughs) injured these are these things are synonyms and to to the coach which I learned later hurt means you need to you walk it off and you're going to play again today and injured means you're done for today and we'll figure out when you can play again and I think when we talk about traumatic injuries and cycling we can sort of use that same framework right are you hurt well okay did you do you have some scrapes do you have some road rash but no broken bones, right? No other severe injuries that would keep you off the bike uh, or keep you from even continuing or completing the race. So they're like, yeah, you're hurt. Okay, like we can, we can bandage you up, but you're not restricted from participation. It's gonna be uncomfortable. It's not gonna be awesome, but you can go back out there and play, right? You could walk it off, so to speak. Um, and then you have your injured injuries, right? So this is, you know, you fell and you broke your collarbone. Or you fell, you separated your shoulder, broke your wrist. Uh, you fell and you, you hit your head and you have a concussion. And I think that's maybe one of those things that we don't... We now, I think, take more seriously because some of the stuff coming out of football. Um, but it's very real in cycling as well. Um, I think we'll talk about like Chris Horner a few years ago now. It's maybe five years ago. I don't know if you remember that like fairly famous stage where he, he crashed and he finished the stage. And then there's this whole like video of him like, oh yeah, where 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 am I? Yeah, it's like he's clearly not with yeah. it, right? And he's not oriented to, you know, where he is and the whole situation. It's like, well, you know, and he, later when asked about it, he's like, Oh, well, I was just doing my thing and racing my bike and like following the route. And he like he was basically on autopilot, even though he wasn't really
0: mm-hmm.
1: fully coherent, which is like not awesome and somewhat super dangerous so
0: yeah i have some uh pretty gnarly stories from teammates about um head injuries stuff like that and maybe we'll save them for when we dive into that section
1: yeah i mean i think that's a i mean i can maybe just go there just go there right now uh, but i think i think the biggest thing with concussion in, in my eyes is two things one like please wear your helmet like don't don't leave home without it that's that's huge and your your helmet's not there to keep you from getting a concussion it's to keep you from fracturing your skull and dying. Um, now, there's certainly some new technologies come out over the last couple of years uh, that seems to have a, a beneficial result uh, in reducing the forces that are likely to contribute to a concussion. Now, is that going to keep you from getting a concussion? No. Uh, the other piece of this is you don't have to hit your helmet or you crack your helmet to have a concussion. From from experience, my worst concussion from cycling by far. There is not. I was not a scratch on that helmet, um, but I hit the pavement pretty hard in a race, and basically just like the the whiplash from you know from my neck and the deceleration and everything. And right, and you if you're moving at speed on your bike and then you hit the ground, and you come to a stop. Your brain is still moving in your head, and it's it's going to impact the front of your skull.
0: And then, yeah. So a concussion is your brain hitting the inside of your skull, right? And then, um, you basically bruise the neurons and the brain cells and they, uh, they take time to, you know, um, filter out the toxins. And, um, this is the concussion recovery process is, um, getting your brain to return to normal.
1: Yeah, exactly. You get a big, a big, big release of ions in the brain. And so there's a bunch of like overactivity. Um, so certainly there's like the, the concept of, yes, it's hitting the front of the skull, like, but there's also sometimes some, uh, some tearing of neurons, like depending on the particular forces that were involved, just rotary forces. Sometimes you have some tearing of neurons, um, and concussion can affect a lot of things, right? It can be headaches, it can be uh, difficulty thinking or not uh, inability to have clear thoughts and focus. Um, it can be sensitivity to light. It can be difficulty with your balance. It can be changes in vision. So there's a lot of there's a lot of symptoms out there that make up sort of this post-concussive syndrome and it, the time really varies from person to person. Like some people have a, a minor concussion and, you know, by the end of the week, they'll be good to go. Those symptoms have cleared up and, you know, usually for most folks with a concussion, it's a pretty quick rehab, thankfully, um, you know, you, and now we're moving away from, we used to have this thought in the, the rehab and sort of concussion recovery world where say, okay, well, you know what, go like go, go in a dark room and rest for a week. And don't expose yourself to light or activity. Don't make your brain work. And that's how you're going to recover. And now the pendulum really this year and last past couple of years has swung more to, you know what, I think we need more of an active recovery. Um, mm. Like even just the latest guidelines that the uh, sports and orthopedic PT and neuro PT section all worked on together uh, that came out this year is, hey, look, you know, active active recovery, you know, so you can work up to the symptom threshold. So go go and do gentle activity get on the trainer maybe for 15 or 20 minutes light exercise um, so long as you don't have symptoms go like you maybe don't stare at your computer on bright screen but if you need to do work or if you need to read those sorts of things go ahead and do that so long as you're not really exacerbating your symptoms it doesn't need to be absolute rest
0: sure so my experience with um, I've never had a concussion. I think, um, I've, I've hit my head a few times, but never, you know, never not known where I was or any of those things. But, um, I, I actually, my old coach got a TBI, um, as part of, uh, I think he was in a UCI race and there was a pretty big pile up, and, um, he basically had to stop, you know, stop training, stop, uh, coaching. He had to stop everything and, um, just let it do its thing. And it ended up taking uh, quite a while for him. Um, which, you know, that's almost like worst case scenario in terms of concussion stuff. And it's interesting that helmets are, uh, there's like a hierarchy of design needs for a helmet. And it's like, if you crack your skull, like death, uh, and then, you know, if you get a concussion, you know, that's, that's really bad, but it, you're not dead. And, um, so, uh, in terms of concussion stuff, uh, another story is, um, apparently like a collegiate racer, um. Mid-category collegiate racer crashed and um, hit her head really hard, and um, was on the same autopilot that you said Chris Horner was on, and um, she ended up getting remounting and mm-hmm. continuing the race, and then she crashed again, and then had like <clears throat> like paralysis issues, and uh, that's like a really scary. And she wasn't she doesn't remember you know any of it, and mm-hmm. it, it was all. Um, you know subconscious motor control just to get back onto the bike and to keep going and um that's like pretty that's like one of the more dramatic stories as far as um concussion stuff goes but you definitely have to be really careful and um one big thing is not accumulating multiple concussions over and over again um because the the total uh bruising on the brain it it adds up over time
1: yeah i think that's what we see with the the football players right is the um Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, as it's often called in the press for for short, uh, is that accumulation of impacts over time. And so I think I think that's one thing. Certainly, is the you know hopefully this you know doesn't happen to you or you mostly keep your bike upright and maybe you crack one helmet in a lifetime and and that's that. Uh, I think the really important thing though is, uh, sort as you mentioned with that particular rider, the second one is really. The one that's concerning in a short period of time when your brain hasn't had the chance to recover right so it's one thing to have one concussion and certainly the severity can uh, can be quite uh, variable depending on the person and the impact and other factors around there however i think you know you have to take into account what's called second impact syndrome so it's having a second concussion before the first one has had time to resolve and in some cases if you know if the combo is severe enough that can actually be a, a deadly combination so you know if you if you do hit your head or if you do you know any notice any of those symptoms difficulty with balance visual changes headaches any of that stuff after a fall so really it's probably worth calling a ride if you can um, or how you know having somebody wait for you right inside the road with you um, and not not riding home not taking that risk
0: yeah my personal preference for um, crashing related, you know, traumatic injuries is to, I usually call it quits um, unless, you know. So the the thing with um, crits in the U.S. I don't know what the rules are in other countries, but you have to have crashed in order to get a free wheel. You can't have just been held up by the crash. Mm-hmm. So um, as long as something other than your foot or the bike. Uh, touches the ground i think i think like as long as you you know if you unclip and you stand and you put your foot down it doesn't count as crashing Mm -hmm. but if anything else touches it does so um, there is a certain tactic to you know falling gently in order to get the free lap oh look you know my jersey's scuffed here and you know look you can see the dirt or whatever and you know unless it's something like that where you know it's a five mile an hour tumble because you were able to break most of the way but you didn't quite get to stop I will usually bag it if it's like a, a real proper crash. And that's because, you know, you don't know about your concussion situation. You don't know about your bone situation necessarily. You, you have so much adrenaline pulsing through you, you know, you probably don't feel anything. Um, and, you know, you could have uh, knocked your knee uh, and then it, it puffs up that night and you wish you hadn't done the last 20 minutes of that crit or, um, you know, there's, there's just so many opportunities for you to risk your season by remounting for, you know, and crashes occur much more often in a crit, so um, for me, those are less valuable races anyway, and unless this is stage four or five and you're third place in GC, you know, in, in a UCI race, um, I'm not sure that the justification to jump back into the race is quite there, and that, that's just my personal, you know, bias towards traumatic injuries and Um, sometimes you have to look more full picture and you know if you did end up knocking your knee or your hip you know how are you going to do in that sprint anyway Uh, as you know one question you also don't know the how your bike's handling you don't know if you um, bent a spoke you don't know if you know you have uh, a lingering like your your tire hasn't flatted yet but you know you scraped up a bunch of the sidewall and it's you know poised to to pop later there's just a lot of opportunities for the bike or you to go wrong and so I don't really see much of a good reason unless you have, you know, full support, new bike, you know, you're third on GC or whatever. And, you know, there's really a good reason to get back into the race.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for most of us, I think it's the right call is to to bag it. Um, I'm sure we've all had our story where we've continued maybe when we shouldn't I and mean, toughed it out. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, if you're, you know, somewhere that you it's, you know, easy enough to bag it like a four corner crit, like just go back to the car, you're done. No 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 you know, there's no no shame uh in you know saving it and, and being prepared for another day and letting your body fully recover.
0: Yeah, and even pros will do this as well. If it's not the Aest of A races, and even sometimes if it is, if it's just not meant to be, they they have the maturity to say, like, well, if that was the race, it's unfortunate. And this is something maybe unique to cycling is you could have done everything right. But then the guy in front of you loses his front wheel Yep. and having the maturity to say, well, you know, every day that I raced that could happen. And it happened to be today and it happened to be an A race and it's just not meant to be. And that's okay. Um, I think that's really important. That's something that takes time to develop.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, nobody's giving you points for, for being a tough guy or gal and, and toughing it out and getting to the finish line because you crashed and you finished third from last. Like that, no, Nobody, nobody cares. I guess, you know, maybe your pride is on the line, but it's probably not worth it at the end of the day.
0: Well, okay. I, one of my teammates um, would do UCI road races, and he was a very good cat one. And his goal was actually to get um, put on the finishers list because there's of the time cut mm-hmm. based on the first rider. And so if you finished, you know, 20 minutes after the first rider, you actually were a finisher instead of getting a DNF. Okay. So, you know, maybe you crash and you're like, well, I just want to UCI finish. If, if, you know, that's like a very unique situation where you may, you know, that's an A race for you and, you know, you just want to finish it.
1: I I feel like that's the sort of one-off situation, right? Where it's like, okay, well, I went into this. It's like, uh, this is probably not a good example. Like if you train four years to go to the Olympics if you got a little injury or something or you crashed, you, you may just suck it up and finish. So you could say that you finished the Olympics, right? If that was a, an objective for you, then yeah, I totally, I totally get that, right? But I think this is something I tell patients a lot of times um, when we're rehabbing from injuries. Like, okay, look, I know you want to go back and play your sport. I know you want to go back and do this race. But what is that in the grand scheme of things? Is that the race that you've been training and working for for a year? Like this is the big the big one for you? And I like, it's super important that you do it. Or is that just another crit on a Saturday in Office Park? And you're—I you, I totally understand being competitive and you want to race, but like what are you—what are you achieving by doing that? And then—and then there needs to be a discussion, right, between you and your PT or whoever you're working with. It's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Like I should—I should do it. Or no, oh, you know that's just another race, and there's going to be another one next week and the weekend after that that I can do and get back into my competitive groove when my body is really ready for it.
0: Yeah. And I think another thing to remember, I think at all levels that, um, you know, the quality of you as a rider, as an athlete is really about the body of work that you create rather than, you know, the one particular race and, you know, everyone, every world champion is incredible for being a world champion, but the ones that are really remembered are the ones who are able to tack on, you know, many more races, not just one world championship. So you know, thinking that this has to be the one race for you is probably not the right mentality as a sports person. And, you know, we we can have our our own opinions about the Olympics. I'm not a huge fan of them. And I think that they sort of miss the mark with this once every four years, really creating this one single event is not exactly what I would consider, um, you know, what being a sports person is.
1: Fair, fair enough. Um. Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just a matter of finding like you say, like are you gonna be a one-hit wonder or are you gonna be like a legendary Rock Hall of Fame band? Like, yeah. oh yeah, there was that one time that guy won the one race. That was kinda cool. Or he's like, Oh yeah, this person's quality. They they won this race, they won that race, they were top five a whole bunch. Like, okay, yeah, they were consistent. Like I can see I can see the the results here.
0: Yeah, and even, you know, NORCAL P1 P one two field, there are a couple of riders that you know, they don't race outside the district. They're not going pro. They're maybe a little bit older. But we all know they're very good riders. And, you know, they consistently churn out results. And, you know, um, one in particular won the district championships. And, you know, he's like 36. And he's been winning races all the time. And it's just like he's so good. You know, he's on his own level. And we just know it and we respect him for it. And, you know, that, that's just him being a good rider. You, mm-hmm. know, reg- you know, he's not forcing any of these things.
1: Yeah, he, sh- he shows up when he's ready to race, and but, but can is consistent and gets a top result. Yeah,
0: so um, concussion stuff, uh, like you said, probably should be working with someone. I think the big thing there is like take your time, only do as much as you can. You try and use your brain a little bit. Once you start having symptoms, you know definitely back it off. In terms of physical injuries, so um, you know you bang your knee, you hit your hip, you break your collarbone. You know, stuff like that. What's uh, what's our course of action to try and get back into the game?
1: So I think you want to sort of distinguish between those. Well, okay, so that's like if you, break, if you break a bone, bone needs to heal. So that's going to require taking some load off of the bone. And you're probably going to hear hear me say this a couple of times throughout the episode. Is so you have to take load off of a tissue to allow it to recuperate and heal. So if you break collarbone, inevitably either you're going to have surgery if it's a bad enough break and it's displaced. Uh, if it's not displaced very much, or it's a a small fracture, then you may just end up in a sling for some period of time. That's the taking the load off. It's the rest piece of the puzzle. Uh, so then you rest it for a little bit. Uh, there may, may or may not be PT depending on what the restrictions are that you have in the shoulder. And so if you, you know, you're working, you're now starting from a, a lower level and starting to build load back in to that tissue, right? So you're loading that collarbone again. If you think about a fracture, uh, Roughly six to eight weeks is time for a bone to heal if you give it a good healing environment. So that can include some rest time and then gradually uh, building back, improving your mobility and then improving strength of the muscles around that area. Right? So if you're resting your pecs, you know, your shoulder muscles, those are going to atrophy a little bit. And so you want to build that back so it's strong and it can support the shoulder. And, you know, like. Yes, we're bike racers, but at the end of the day, we're also human beings that do other things. So you want to make sure that you restore your function so you can do all your normal day-to-day tasks that you need to do, right? It's like, oh, gee, I have trouble putting on my jacket when it's cold outside because my shoulder's so stiff. That's not terrible. But hey, I can like, I can ride on the drops perfectly fine. Like, okay, well, that's good, but, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're all amateurs here. You don't want to be the guy who can't walk anymore because, you know, he wanted to do an extra, you know, two months of racing, Uh, when he was 32 or whatever um so putting it in context you you do need to you know get the mobility back that you once had uh, during recovery it's also interesting that you said taking the load off the tissue that's a lot like you know how do do our quads recover and and get better if if every day you just fatigue them it's the exact same thing
1: yeah well but i think when you think about training like there's a lot of overlap between training and, and rehab it's just like it's rehabs all are kind of around the um like the rest week the taper and then the sort of building steps right that's rehab and then our training is taking that again like, to that next level but then cycling through right and having those breaks where we taper down and build back up and and repeat um so yeah i mean i think but with our quads right we have a hard day maybe a couple hard days in a row we build up uh some load and then we have some rest days or some active recovery days and then we let that that load diminished a little bit, the muscle just recuperate. and it, this is just a matter of time scale, right? So for a fracture, you talk about healing there, we're talking about six or eight weeks for you know daily exercise induced uh, tissue damage or soreness, a day or two, right 30 you know 24, 36, 48 hours for recovery time. And so now it's just a matter of time scale. that's where those recovery days, active recovery, all those things that we do come in and allow us to recover and ride you know several days a week and you know build up our mileage over time
0: and so what about like uh, maybe a joint injury so you didn't break anything but you really like banged the side of your hip and you know it makes a weird clicking noise now or, or something like that and you know the, the x-ray came back negative but you know it, or your elbow it's just not quite you know doing and there's pain it's it's not quite right but you know yeah so
1: i think that's that's good. So then now we're talking about a, a soft tissue injury, right? And so if there's a, a ligamentous injury, sometimes those are slower depending on the grade. If it's a, a grade one ligamentous injury, can be days to weeks, a couple weeks at most. If it's a grade two, three, um, you know, so these are pretty severe sprains. Like this is, you know, if you had a grade three angle sprain, you're probably like not putting a ton of weight on it. That's a pretty good swollen yeah, you know, black and blue type of a, an I thought the
0: so I sprained my ankle one time playing soccer and um, they told me the grade was just like you have three ligaments and so the grade is just the number of ligaments that you um, sprained in a, or in that is context it, yeah okay but um, normally so for a joint they'll grade it one two three mm-hmm. is that correct full
1: for, for a, a ligament yeah okay. even within a ligament
0: okay and then um, that doesn't have to do with the number it's just Not the like it's sort of subjective severity and you'll have uh, some sort of chart that says, you know, these are sort of the key characteristics of someone who has each of the grades right. and then you you grade it yourself. Right, exactly.
1: And so, you know, look, so for your twos and threes, those are going to be longer recoveries. Uh, you know, if you just make things very simple, uh, and, like simplify the world, you sort of have red tissues in your body and white tissues in your body. Uh, so white tissues are bone, ligament, tendon, and red is like muscle and skin. Red tissues are red for a reason. They have tremendous blood supply. Uh, so muscles, skin, they heal pretty darn fast, given the opportunity. Uh, bone, ligament, tendon, they don't have the rich blood supply. They heal a little bit slower. So when you talk about bony tendinous injury, you're talking like typically six, eight weeks minimum, and then kind of moving up and you know, even some like tendinosis or some, you know, ligament sprains that aren't complete ruptures, those can sometimes be in the 12 week or longer range to be fully healed. Um, whereas like your muscle tissue is, you know, six weeks is, you did a pretty good job damaging your muscle. You have pretty, a pretty severe, you know, muscular injury at that point in time. So it's kind of, again, this is like this time scale thing of what tissue did I injure and there's some underlying biology that dictates,
0: uh, what time scale it is it's going to take to recover. Sure. And like you said before, in terms of recovery, um, recovery from injury is not that different from recovery from your workouts. And do you have any specific tips or, you know, just just continue with the good, healthy eating, lots of sleep, uh, hydration and, you know, these classic uh, cyclist recovery techniques? Are there anything in particular for traumatic stuff?
1: You know, and I think that's the the key sort of foundational pieces, right, um, is to rest and like particularly rest the area. As, as well as trying to get adequate sleep, which I know can totally be, be challenging at times. Like if you ever had road rash on a hip, you're probably not sleeping on that side. That's not an awesome experience. Uh, so I know that can be challenging. So sometimes it's like, okay, well, how do I adapt and how do I find a, a comfortable sleeping position?
0: Yeah, crashing and getting road rash really teaches you how to sleep in new positions. Um, yeah. Know, if you always slept on your back, uh, maybe you're going to learn how to sleep on your side now when you uh, scrape up your back.
1: Yep, absolutely. You will you will learn that in a, in a hurry. Just don't try not to do both sides. Like you know, like st- stick to one surface if yeah. you can. Um, so yeah, so I think that those things that you mentioned are key pieces to the puzzle. Um, you know, like there's some stuff out there around, um, particularly like collagen, and you know, like trying to get the the healing, and maybe like if you supplemented with like a bone broth type of a, a nutrient. Um, that maybe that helps with tendon healing there's certainly some some early bench science that's been done that would suggest that's the case Uh, there's some other there's some other like human studies that suggest that doing your tendon loading exercises and having um, this bone broth on either end or like the collagen constituent of that uh, actually may facilitate recovery of particularly tendon injuries because that is a component of tendon and and I like the the way I understand it is that the thought as well you want to and I think you've mentioned this previously. Like you want to have the resource available when you want yeah. when you want to go and build, right? So this is like okay, well, resources available in my body. I'm now putting on the demand that the, requires that resource to be available, and lo and behold, my body has it and can you know put it to use right away. There's yeah. no there's no wait for that to happen. So that's that's certainly out there as an idea. I think that we probably need a little bit more research, uh, at this point in time to be able to say that definitively, but certainly the, the early results that I've seen and literature seem promising. Um, so that for sure, you know, ice boy, I think
0: the, yeah, I thought ice was a big no, no.
1: I would say that the, the research on ice, you know, it certainly tending towards no, uh, right now, I would say, if it feels good, you should probably do it.
0: Okay, that's true. So a lot of these, uh, maybe less, you know, non-white paper uh, techniques, like for example, uh, recovery pants, like mm-hmm. um, tight pants, they don't show any, um, you know, empirical data that they're beneficial. But athletes who say their legs feel better afterwards did better. Yep. And uh, that's the same thing with heat, ice. You know, all this stuff is like you know i feel better if i have vegetables and it's right. like okay maybe the vegetables helped maybe you know you just feel better after the vegetables so you know let's not question it and
1: right absolutely if you if you think carrots make you ride faster eat carrots right yeah.
0: you know belief effect goes a long way but so in terms of ice like um i think the classic example is um if you do heavy lifting or mm-hmm. any sort of um, big muscular damage and then you do an ice bath afterwards mm-hmm. it actually prevents the muscles from growing on themselves like you decrease the hypertrophy and you decrease the um the increases in power that you would have so it's it's effectively like not doing the work you know like you you know say you do three sets of five it's it's like doing one set of five instead
1: you're you're nullifying someone's back and there's certainly this thought here that okay i did a workout i did a heavy lift and i created some inflammation and inflammation is a key signaling piece to ultimately result in the adaptation that I want. Therefore, I should not reduce the inflammation because if I reduce the inflammation, I'm not going to get the same vigorous response to rebuild and repair afterward. I I kind of I can buy into that. I, I can certainly see the logic of that line of thinking. And I think there's some early certainly some evidence where like taking uh, an anti-inflammatory like an ibuprofen after uh, a surgery, reduces the rate at which the bone heals.
0: Right. So I was going to mention that as well. If you, if you do have a bone traumatic bone injury, then um, you don't want to take something like Advil or another ibuprofen because um, it'll slow down the, the regrowth of the bone.
1: Yep, And so I don't know where turmeric fits in that puzzle, right? Because there's certainly evidence that turmeric has an anti- Inflammatory effect, or curcumin is the component that gets extracted.
0: So I was told for curcumin, it actually um, tricks your body into ramping up its own, um, like, what's the term? Like your your body reduces inflammation on its own over time. Mm -hmm. So taking something like curcumin will ramp up your body's capacity to reduce inflammation, to resolve inflammation. So I I think the trick here is you want to create an inflammatory load through your training, and then you want your body to process it on its own. So you, yep. But you want to maximize the rate at which it processes it on its own in order to still get the stimulus, but recover as fast as possible to create a new stimulus as soon as you can. Right. So, for example, something like ice and Advil decrease the inflammation and they, they don't have an effect on the body's inflammatory response, but they decrease the inflammation that you created. So you get less hypercompensation. What you really want is to ramp up your body's ability to hypercompensate quicker. So stuff like sleep gives your body the time and the rest it needs in order to, to hypercompensate quicker. Um, hydration allows all your body functions to work well. Yep. You know, all these nutrition, classic things. Yep. Yep, they're all, you know, the nutrition gives you the, um, like the precursors you need in order to, you know, do the hypercompensation. So, you know, basically the, the things that are seen as successful are the things that ramp up your body's own ability to, uh, to recover.
1: Yeah, it's all about finding the right pathway, right? And that uh, you want... Yeah, you don't want to blunt the natural response, right? To you don't want to blunt that natural inflammatory response. Maybe you don't know, maybe you can argue that at some point there's too much inflammation,
0: right? So that's something I was thinking. Like hockey players traditionally will do ice baths, and that's because they have a game the next evening or, mm-hmm. or two evenings away, and you know they're like, "I'm not," I, you know, "I'm in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I don't need." Um, you know, I don't need to train. I don't need training stimulus. Like the season's over in a week, whether I win or not, I just need to be be recovered so I can play the next game. And, you know, maybe stage racing, there's an argument for a similar Mm -hmm. uh, thing, like an ice bath. But, um, if you're training, you know, you should probably stay away.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe using your taper, who who knows? There's, there's, I think probably a lot of area to explore of how you optimize Mm -hmm. the, the use of recovery modalities, um, with your training to optimize the effect.
0: Yep. So, so before if, we get off uh, too too far off topic, um, maybe we can transition to overtraining injuries. Yeah unless so you had did you have a little bit more? No now?
1: no no that's kind of actually where I was gonna go was, okay. was overuse injuries. And so I I generally think about overuse injuries as preventable injuries in the sense that there was probably some mistake that occurred uh, either in your training or in your fitting. And so for fitting, like see see prior episode that we talked, or, or prior two episodes that we talked about fitting um, in different levels of detail. Or there was some train error. And so here comes this load idea again. It's it's about tissue load. So I think the two most common things you see for cyclists to injure are a knee um, or low back, are the most common areas that you see injury. And, you know, if it's not a low back injury from, say, falling off your bike, uh, I would I would class that more into an overuse or like a training error type of an injury. Right. Your handlebars are way too low and your hamstrings are not sufficiently flexible. Therefore, you're bending a ton from your lower back and the muscles are stretched and they're not happy after doing 12 hours of training last week. Makes sense. Okay, Uh, You know, we need to adjust our fit to accommodate to our body, and that probably goes away. Now, what about your knee? Like, oh, I have patellar tendonitis from training, right? Okay, well, how did you, so the question's for me, like, what's your training history? How long have you been training for? Did you just start, like you were a runner in college and you just picked up biking? Uh, You probably shouldn't train the same amount of hours per week on a bike as you did when you were running. Your body's not prepared for that, it's a different stimulus. What's your training, like, your progression look like? If you're experiencing that, what's your progression look like through the different cycles of your training? Did you take three weeks off in the off-season and hang out on the beach, and now you hop back on your bike and want to do 20 hours? That's probably not awesome. Your body's probably not ready for that. And sometimes I think it's even more subtle things. You, you have this great program. You're building up. It totally makes sense. The load progression is appropriate. And then you're like, oh, I have this long endurance ride. I'm going to do it on some hilly terrain this week because I want to do hills. But you've been riding flat for the last three months. And now, great, your watts were the same. But instead of doing it at 95 RPMs, you did it at 75 RPMs because you were on up hills. And now this is a different load. And your knee is angry at you. I think the thing about it, though, is it probably doesn't happen from just one ride. It's usually the sum of many things. Right. It's, yeah. it's the sum of everything that happened before. So uh, by way of example, like you can imagine if you were fortunate enough to have an awesome team and you were the GC guy and you know you had the misfortune of having a, a mechanical failure with 5k to go on a climb and your teammates close to your size and, you know, lends you his bike and you ride up the hill and the t- you know, at the top, your knees really sore, your knees really sore next day. Probably wasn't that 5k that caused your knee, that caused the overuse injury because his saddle position was goofy. It was probably like, if you looked back the last three weeks of your training, there's something in there about how your load ramped up or how your load changed over time that set you up, and then that pushed it over the edge.
0: And what's also interesting for that particular example is um, how confined, confined perfect a lot of these top athletes are, or athletes who do a lot of total volume, are very um, they're very good within their bounds, but as soon as the saddle slips or the the um, seat post slips or the, even just a little bit and they get outside of their bounds, then they're really exposed to these issues. And it's because they've been building up the lack of mobility, they've been building up this uh, muscular imbalance. That mm-hmm. it's it's fine for now because I'm in my perfect fit, but you're you're hiding the fact because you know you, you never get into the area where you expose that mobility you have this little um, fit adjustment you have like yep. a, a slip or you, you switch bikes and suddenly that that issue is now exposed and it's out in the air and, and then now you have a knee problem but you didn't just get a knee problem now you you had the, the precursors for it this whole time it's just some something triggered it yep. to actually cause like manifest as pain
1: right yeah something pushed it over the edge but you were you were probably right up to the edge up until that point and now now you have, an irritated patellar tendon or, or what have you. Now, I will say that the only overuse injury, if you want to call it, that I think possibly happens on one ride that I'll give you, is a saddle sore. I think that's possible to get on a single ride. Like that's sure. that, that's not something like, oh, I was riding you know 3,000 miles and now I
0: have a saddle sore. <laughs> but I would argue the reason you got a saddle sore is because your mobility is now lowered and your hip angle is maybe a little bit off because you can't, uh, you know, rotate it correctly because you know, you have to keep it open or something. And then now you've changed where you sit on the saddle. Yeah, you and change, that causes... your, change your loading. Sure. Yeah. So sure. then maybe that even isn't a single day thing. Yeah,
1: definitely, um, definitely possible.
0: Even though it is certainly saddle sores go from zero to a hundred. Uh, yeah. You definitely, a single that's that's
1: when you definitely, I mean, not that you wouldn't notice a, a sore knee day over day, right? Like, Oh yeah, that, that didn't hurt yesterday and now it hurts today. I, I don't know. Somehow I think a saddle so <laughs> raises itself to the conscious level in a little bit different way.
0: Yeah, sure. And I think it's interesting too, like um you know, we we don't talk about being like a complete athlete. Like Paul Paul Sarah was very focused on, yeah, I want to be a great athlete. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I'm doing all kinds of gym work, core stuff, shoulder work, you know, hip work, all this stuff and um I think a lot of cyclists don't have that mentality of being this complete athlete and Um, Trying to be the best cyclist and not the best athlete Mm -hmm. is what gets you in trouble, in in my opinion. And I think that a lot of times we'll spend time on the bike and we'll neglect this full body strength and, you know, the classic injuries of cyclists of like weak glute meds and, you know, um, you know, tight hamstrings. Like all these things are are just uh, actually we're trying to be good cyclists, but we're forgetting that we need to be good athletes, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think very... Like you said, we're getting into this little box, right? I'm on my bike and my fit is just so, and I make it all work. And the heck with the, like, I don't need to stand up and run, right? Like, why would I do that? This is, this works pretty well, right? Or I don't need to be able to lift a weight necessarily because whatever, I only put down X amount of force. um, That's, you know, not that much more of my body weight or doing a single leg squat. So yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with what Paul says, like, yeah, we should actually be very good athletes who happen to ride bikes as opposed to mediocre athletes that are very specialized in
0: bike riding but i, I would say it's almost impossible to avoid trying to you know it, you end up being in a box and all professional cyclists are in a box and you you look at their posture it's not mm-hmm. great you look at uh their physique it's not you know like you don't Okay, there are a few exceptions. For example, like Tom Bonin, I would say Fabian Kenchelara and like Peter Sagan are great examples of like you just see them and you're like that's a good athlete.
1: Mm-hmm. That's like, a that's a fit athletic individual. If you
0: yeah, if you put them in like a soccer outfit, you would be like I bet that's a, that's a professional soccer right. player. You know, you, you put them in a in a tennis outfit, you know, and they're like yeah, I could see them at Wimbledon, you mm-hmm. know. They they're just good athletes. And then you see other people, like especially most GC riders and you know, their posture is horrible. You know, you're like, this is this just like an anorexic person or, you know, a very right. lean person? Yeah, you know, if
1: anything, you're like, oh, does that guy run uh, 10K? Like, that's... Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, well, until there's... you see their hip flexor mobility. Well, fair. There, there's a little overlap in, in endurance sport, right? Mm-hmm. Where you'd be like,
0: okay, I pres-, you know, conceivably, maybe uh,
1: that's what you do, but
0: not... But I would argue the reason the GC guys are, you know, their, their posture is not great and they, they're... They're really trying to perfect themselves for a very specific task. Mm -hmm. And their goal is to not get dropped on any of the 10, you know, mountaintop finish stages in the Tour de France. And, you know, they have very specific demands for that. And they don't have any space for, you know, being a complete athlete. Every day they have to, you know, stimulate their body in the correct way to get the response they need in order to have the watts per kilo to stay with the other guys. And they're willing to sacrifice, you know, the, The longevity and you know how many of them end up getting overuse injuries because they are walking that line yeah
1: so so specific so so close to that line i think you know i've i've seen it in other athletes at the high level that i've worked with whether it's soccer players or like runners whatever they all get little goofy um restrictions or other other things that if you looked if you like looked at a normal person like okay this is just an average person off the street like wow You know, the average person off the street actually has better flexibility in this very in this way that you don't. Mm -hmm. But you know what? For your sport, that kind of makes sense. So, you know, you're not, you know, it's whatever. You fail the test for flexibility in this particular domain. But that's really effective for what you do as a profession. So you should probably just keep doing it. Right. Like, well,
0: who Mm -hmm. am I who am I to say?
1: It does not hurt you. So.
0: Well, I would say the big reason to change it is if you do have overuse injuries. Mm-hmm. And the first place that I would look if I had overuse injuries, which I've dealt with, is, you know, just my overall ability as an athlete. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you do PT assessments on your clients, there are just these classic uh, mobility tests and mm-hmm. um I don't know the names of all of them. A lot of the hip ones I used to know the names of. Where you basically sit off the end of a table. And yeah,
1: so like a Thomas test. You have Ober's test. So yeah, there's a there's a number of sort of specific orthopedic tests to tell you, you know, is this muscle flexible? Is this muscle, you know, flexible? And there's certain benchmarks that you can go through and, and expect, and or you know, and so yeah, you can see relative to some theoretical ideal what you should be able to do. Um, and yeah, if it's you know, if you're 20 degrees off on your hip flexor mobility, that should probably be a red flag for you because that, that's probably impacting your cycling performance on some level.
0: Right. So Todd, correct me if I'm wrong. So uh, the way that I understand knee issues, and I I don't, I don't think I've ever had knee issues. I'm very lucky. Um, I have hip issues, so I'm, maybe I'm unlucky, but um, so, you know, our, our patella is on top of our knee and a lot of the muscles like our um, rectus femoris, a lot of the, um,
1: all the quad muscles.
0: Yeah, so they all connect and they overlap onto the patella. And um, same with like the IT band has some interaction mm-hmm. with the knee as well and um, our adductors. Mm-hmm. And so basically, if you if one of these is tight, it'll pull the patella out of its natural groove. And then you start to get grinding or uh, breaking away of the cartilage or something like that. And you, you start to get pinching nerve issues this is sort of the the manifestation of the knee pain. And at the end of the day, the root cause is the the imbalance in the tightness of the muscles um, in some way. Is that right? That's
1: that's that's in explanation. Okay. Um, there's, there's other pieces to the puzzle too. Um, so, so like
0: our bones are um, sort of held together by our muscles, right? So, and, our, and our ligaments. And okay. Yeah. For those two things, sure. So, you know, if... If our bones aren't interacting properly, you know we should be looking at the muscles and the ligaments, right?
1: Yeah, and the, to be fair, the ligaments are sort of safety checks, right? Like the, the ligaments okay. prevent your joint from moving too far, your bones from moving too far apart, and your muscles are to move your bones. Okay. Well, you know, crudely, um, is the way to think about that. So, you know, if you look at a knee. And a knee is a hinge. It doesn't have a ton of motion in the other planes It just it pivots as a hinge. That's the easiest way to think about it. It doesn't really have a lot of rotary motion. And so it's in between two joints that have triplanar motion, your ankle, foot and ankle, and then your hip um, have much more freedom of motion. Right. So if there's a deficit in either one of those, above or below, then the opposite one can compensate a little bit, right? So if your hip does something funny, your ankle can compensate for that a little bit and still Mm -hmm. move in plane, right? Your knee can't because it doesn't have that degree of freedom to be able to move. It can only hinge. And so now your knee is not hinging and loading the way that it should. It's somewhat asymmetrical. And now this is where you start to deal with some load issues. And so in particular, because the patellar tendon inserts into the tibial tuberosity, so at the top of the shin there. Um, really, the patella tracks with the tibia, because it really the patella really sits in a groove on the femur, at the end of the femur there, and it doesn't have a solid attachment onto the femur. It's really floating there. So it, it really follows the tibial tuberosity. And so the tibial, the tibial tuberosity doesn't necessarily follow the femur, though. So... If okay. your say foot collapses into pronation and then your your tibia moves medially, you're pushing. You're putting a compressive force at the femur
0: on the inside of on the
1: femur. The, um, the femur and the patella. Okay. Because uh, the patella didn't the patella wanted to go one way and the, the femur didn't necessarily follow. Um, alternatively, the reverse can be true. Right? If the femur goes in and the tibia doesn't, now you have a compressive force on the femur because the patella is anchored to that tibia and the femur moved and okay. so the, the the surface that the patella's floating on or moving across has now moved and now the alignment is off so there's there's a couple pieces that can move it's like hip um hip issues can contribute to knee pain foot issues can contribute to knee pain also to your point like other tightnesses of the muscles can or the it band can contribute to uh patellar issues and
0: what's interesting with specifically knee issues is that because the in cycling for the most part your hips are uh, static and your your ankles are mostly static if, Mm -hmm. if you have a tight float on your cleats so the the issue will manifest in your knee because you've now um you know Held static, the other two ends, and so the the knee is at the whim of these two other joints. And if they're in
1: a like like we said, like if they're in a weird spot, then the other one will try to compensate, but the poor knee can't. It's just stuck. And (laughs) cycling is just like prime for overuse injuries, right? 90 RPMs times three hours in the saddle. Yeah, that's a lot of repetitions. You know, at how many ever watts, you you can start to see that there's a lot of load going through there and a lot of cycles. And if it's not it doesn't take a lot of being off to accumulate to be uh, an
0: overuse injury. And also overuse injuries are um, really common because there is so much freedom um, with something like your knee the- if you, if you are pedaling, try and move your knee around while you're pedaling, and that thing can go anywhere, mm-hmm. even if yeah. you have really tight float, even if you're not moving around in the saddle, and you're trusting that it stays... It doesn't have to be perfectly up and down, but it needs to be within a certain bound. Right. It's um, not
1: a piston. It's not like it, yeah. it can go exactly up and down, but yeah, you to your point. like There's a, a fairly tight window that it wants to move within that's comfortable and expected in a reasonable range of motion, and then you start to get outside of that, and tissues aren't going to be very happy. So
0: I read a white paper about this exact topic and it it basically said, there's no expectations that your knee should stay perfectly middle, but, um, you know, riders, even professional riders had no issue and were able to hit their, um, you know, power performance values, as long as they were within, you know, some range. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, it, it should look good. I think that if you're outside of that range, you'll, you'll be able to see it if you recorded yourself and, you know, you can see the way your knee buckles. That's a good indication that it's probably not right.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're, if your knee's moving a bunch horizontal, you know, lateral side to side with every pedal stroke, there's probably something going on somewhere else that can be addressed in your fit mm-hmm. um, or in your mobility that. If you fix that would resolve the knee tracking.
0: Yep. So, um, you know, if we can summarize sort of overuse injuries, it it is um, just, you know, using something a little bit out of whack, not quite how it's supposed to be used, but so many times over and over again. And um, how do we, how do we attack this problem? Um, And also, an, another good question is, should we try and preemptively attack it or should we you know, just wait for symptoms to occur?
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, hopefully you can prevent it, right? I mean, I think that was the what I started with, right? I, I think overuse injuries are preventable injuries and in that we should be able to identify the factors that may cause them, be that fitting, um, your personal flexibility and strength restrictions and or training error, uh, all those things are things that you can start to address before these injuries come upon you. Uh, when we talk about overuse injuries, again, just like we talked about traumatic injuries, giving yourself some rest time is crucial. We have to unload the tissue to allow it to heal. So it may involve some time off the bike. Doesn't mean you have to walk around with crutches because you have patellar tendinitis, but you probably do want to take some time off the bike to reduce that load could be a week could be a couple of days just to try to, to get that to calm down and then you can start to kind of build build back in on your bike since kind of active recovery right it's like take the load off the tissue it's gonna lose a little bit of strength maybe and then you're gonna build build it back up to a, a strong state and I think one of the key things when we talk about tendon healing let talk a lot about in the research is eccentric loading of that tendon um, and you know, when we're cycling, everything's concentric. We're always short our muscles and our lo- are force produced by shortening the muscle. Uh, we don't have a phase of cycling where we're l- putting load on the muscle and the muscle is lengthening. Um, Even our hamstrings? Yeah, it's not, not eccentrically okay. loaded. Uh, so in that case, we, we want to put some eccentric load because uh, we know from the research that's really helpful for helping tendons heal. Um, so this is like doing squats. Um, as, as an example, so like a progression from double leg squats to single leg squats. The
0: um, the downward, the, down, the controlled yeah. downward control yes, downward, ta- control downward okay. motion
1: exactly. Uh, and there's not like, there's not a, a harm in doing the concentric motion. It's not like you have to like, pull yourself up on a rope. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you want you, know, you want to do that. And there is some there is some evidence out there that suggests doing uh, like isometric, so going to a squat and holding, um, can help reduce pain uh, in a, an acute tendon injury. So in that acute phase, if it's, it's painful, you may have some success in relieving that pain by just getting to a squat, holding it. Um, some of the research says up to 60 seconds holding it, and uh, that can help to reduce your pain and get
0: you, get you moving. So one thing that uh, I noticed a lot with um, other riders who have overuse injuries, they almost they say, oh, well, my knee hurts. You know, I'm going to take three or four days off, and then it feels better. And then, well, now it just hurts again. They get cycle. Yeah. The cycle of. And I think something that's important is, you know, figuring out what's wrong. And so, um, you know, I think that Todd and I would both say, you know, go see a PT. Um, But if you did, you know, feel the need to do it on your own, you know, obviously, um, you know, you can just poke around is is a good way to start. And um, but there's, there's interesting stuff like the tentpole theory. Um, is that how is that like a clinical term? Is that how you guys all refer to it?
1: For, oh, you mean like from uh, a recovery?
0: No, so like the idea with the tent pole theory is like, you know, if if the outside of your knee hurts, mm-hmm. you know it's like tent poles. And if you pull on one, yep, um, you've moved. You know what, what snaps is the other side of the tent? Sure. pops out. So the idea of, oh well, you know, my ex my hurts <laughs> and it's like, well, that's not you know and and, you know you foam roll that thing and you're like well i'm really foam rolling this because it hurts but it you know you're not getting any better and it's because that's the end of the tent pole Mm -hmm. that something else is pulling on
1: i guess i don't think about it in those terms Uh, i think of it more i think we call it regional interdependence right which is that sounds a lot more professional yeah right it's one one thing influences the other right and Mm -hmm. so like i mentioned so right well just because your knee hurts What about your ankle, right? Maybe your ankle is actually the culprit.
0: You don't have enough ankle mobility. Right, and now that load's going into the knee.
1: Um, So, like, making sure that you look at all the things. is Sometimes it's not just the obvious thing. Like, yes, if you feel directly on your knee, you probably don't need to look at your ankle unless, you know, your ankle made you trip. But, you know, that aside, if you feel directly on your knee, yeah, you're probably your knee that's the issue. But if it's this overuse injury, you at least need to have your eyes open to the surrounding things to be able to, like, okay, well... Hey, is my ankle mobility good or bad? How's my hamstring? What about my hip? Yep. Like, oh, and this yeah, is my, why you... my outside knee hurts, but geez, my adductor mobility is miserable. No, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, like that's why I think to your point is yeah, maybe go see a professional right. who who's thinking about all these things, seen this a little bit before, and can start to point you in the right direction. As if I mean, yeah, you could uh, toil for a long time, like oh yeah, I've been been hammering away my IT band, foam rolling the crap out of it, and it still hurts.
0: Yeah, and it's like, well, it's actually your, you know, something right. else. It's
1: actually, actually your ankle that's causing yeah. that.
0: And, and you've now been trying to deal with it for three months and, you know. Right. And you now shift. it's
1: in uh, more chronic state as opposed to acute and, yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, anything else for overuse stuff? Any uh, hot tips for and, us to take away?
1: No, I mean, I think the biggest thing is, one, hopefully we can prevent it, right? So, hopefully we get your flexibility good, your strength good, your fit is in a, in a good spot and you have a good training progression. So, you know, if you're not experienced, you're working with a coach or someone who can guide you and make sure things are appropriate. And I think the other thing is, you know, I think we've talked about this like in recovery and training and everything before. Don't be afraid to take a little time off. Like it's, let your, let your body heal. Uh, you know, I think as a, as a PT, I think sometimes, you know, my job is about helping you get out of your own way um, and just telling you like, hey, you know, look, you need to take a week off here and let your tissue heal. Uh, not, you know, yes, I know you want to ride your bike. I know you have race coming up, but continuing to train is counterproductive. Take a couple of days off, take a week off. Let's do these things so that you can get back on your bike. I think especially with athletes, sometimes that becomes my job more than anything else. Um, it's just saying, hey, take it down a notch. That's rest. That's your body wants to do the recovery process. We need to allow it we need to get you out of your own way so your body can take over and do what it needs to do
0: Right. you should keep in mind you know what's the fastest way to reach my goal and sometimes that's not always more training sometimes exactly it's less exactly the only other thing I, that i want to say about overuse injuries is um, the time to address these and to learn about what makes you not a good athlete uh, maybe, maybe you're a great cyclist but you're not a good athlete is the off season and the preseason when you're lifting. I think gym work is a great opportunity to. There's so many gym exercises that are, you know, well, here's this one legged twist thing. And, um, you know, I can't even do that with five pounds. Right. Yep. And,
1: It'll expose you.
0: Yeah. You know, th- there's so many gym exercises that are like, if you don't use this muscle, you can't complete this. And, you know, you do the exercise and it's the hardest thing you've ever done. And you have a two pound weight in your hand. And you're almost embarrassed and, you know, you, you want to go home. You don't want people to watch you do this, but it's, you know, learning about what muscle is being used. Why am I so bad at it? I, I must not be using that muscle to its fullest capacity. Is it, you know, is it too tight? Is it just weak? Is it, you know, what's going on here? The time to do that is the off season and the preseason when, you know, when you're doing your, your heavy lifting as well, or, you know, maybe during the earlier yeah. stages, yeah.
1: maybe before you put the heavy yeah, weights maybe on. Not. Yeah.
0: It, you should have your, um, you should have your knee mobility fi- figured out before you do your, um, your three sets of five. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's tra- training in- in- and and injuries. injuries and recovery. And, um, hopefully that, that gave you some insight. Um, as we always say, Todd,
1: keep the rubber side down so you don't get the injuries, at least yeah. the traumatic ones.
0: And, uh, well, unless like some wildlife well, comes and attacks so, you. Fair enough um, we don't have much control over that, but okay. I digress. Um, we'll see you on the next one, I guess.
1: Yeah. And if you like it, you know, give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and, you know, please share with friends.